The Colorado Business Roundtable unapologetically tells the story that business is a force for good in our community, featuring conversations with thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government. Welcome to A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. Hi, welcome to this episode of A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown, sponsored by Colorado Business Roundtable. And this is our first episode where we've actually used this new name, A Seat at the Table. And we're really honored to be welcoming Colorado's Attorney General, Phil Weiser, to the show today. Uh, Welcome to the show. Awesome to be with you. (laughs) Thank you. And you didn't know this was the first episode of our new new podcast that we're doing um, that really will go out to you know, our executives from academia, business, community, and government that we work with every day on policy issues that affects employers here in Colorado. So it's a very timely to talk about some of the initiatives that you're working on with your office. But before we dive into that, uh, tell us more about you. Tell us your story, a little bit more about how you ended up in the Attorney General's office here in Colorado. I am a first-generation American, and my family story is both uh, a quintessential American story, but also a little unique because my mom and my grandparents survived the Holocaust and were liberated by the U.S. Army uh, on April 13, 1945. They decided that they wanted to come to the United States of America because they believed that we were and are a nation of freedom and opportunity for everybody. So I came here with nothing and came through Ellis Island, give me your tired, give me your poor. And they worked really hard. My mom went to college, City University of New York, working while she went to college. And my dad, my mom were both first generation going to college. And then I grew up with this real reverence for the United States of America, our nation's values and commitments. And that's really felt like a calling that I had to serve those values. And so my whole career has been in public service. I went to law school because I wanted to serve. Most of my career has been appointed at the federal level, different positions that were appointed at the state level and serving as a professor and dean at the University of Colorado Law School. I was very involved with the local entrepreneurial community. And it was really after the 2016 election that I decided to run for office for the first time, ran to be our attorney general, the people's lawyer. And for the last three and a half years, I've really enjoyed that opportunity. And what a great story, Phil. I appreciate you sharing some of that because it's, it seems like immigrants in particular, you know, so appreciate what America has to offer. Uh, I have a friend who just became a citizen, you know, just this past year and his daughters are becoming citizens. And uh, it's just such a wonderful, w- wonderful story of America. We can't take America for granted. The Colorado story is as the centennial state. We just celebrated Colorado Day. We became a state in 1776, tying us to the Declaration of Independence and those very ideals, uh, which is everyone is uh, equal in terms of how we're born. Everyone should be able to have a voice in our society and how we govern ourselves. We as a nation need to reflect on those values. And and obviously for me growing up as an immigrant, they weren't ones I took for granted. Um, The experience of the Holocaust is a painful reminder of what rising hate demonization can lead to. And Honestly, today we do have some of those signs of demonization and rising hate that do alarm me. Well, and it's a divisive time to be in office. Uh, you know, I've been involved using my voice in the political world for a long time as a citizen. What's it like serving as our attorney general in a time where I think there's more polarization perhaps than ever, and then still finding, you know, your priorities and where you wanna where you wanna lead our state? A few a few thoughts on that, Debbie. One is because I believe so deeply in our nation's core values, I've leaned in in an initiative we've called the Ginsburg Scalia Initiative. 
to elevate respectful engagement, listening, and dialogue as core values of basic governance. And we're developing a documentary based on a unified Colorado challenge where people spend an hour listening to one another in dialogue on issues, in respectful engagement. That effort will be part of a civic education effort that Wayne Williams and I are leading. It's really important that we see each other as fellow citizens, which also means I work really hard to show up that way. So I do work hard to go all across our state, all different sorts of areas to listen. And part of how we overcome demonization and divisiveness is we lead with empathy and with listening as opposed to judgment and insulting rhetoric. And there's too much of that insulting rhetoric. I think social media is obviously a big part of this dynamic. It encourages and rewards people acting outrageously and often being mean to one another. Yeah, I agree. One of my mentors way, way back in the day was Senator Bill Armstrong. I actually knew him after he had finished serving and returned home. And I thought he was um, really embodied more of a statesman mentality and a long-term mentality with how he thought of relationships in Colorado. I, I appreciate what you're doing there. It seems like that civil discourse and actually just understanding people is is becoming kind of a lost art. So I, I look me, forward to actually hearing more about that project. Well, Debbie, let me mention Bill Armstrong is a good example. In the 1980s, Bill Armstrong was one senator. Tim Worth was another. Two people with different ideologies, but they could, would, and did work together. And one issue came up, which was who's going to be the judge on the federal court of appeals. And the Senate was in the hands of the Democrats. The president was Ronald Reagan. So there was a little bit of a impasse, shall we say. And Reagan said to Armstrong and Tibworth, can you guys agree on a candidate that two of you could accept? And we'll put that person on the circuit court of appeals. That candidate was David Ebell. David was picked by President Reagan, but with Tim Worth at the table and them deciding, what do we want as a judge on the 10th Circuit? Um, David Ebell is who brought me to Colorado. Um, and that civility, that collegiality is part of his core and I've been fortunate to have mentors like also Justice Ginsburg, who had that relationship with Justice Glia that inspires this initiative where people can listen to one another and work to solve problems. And, and Roy Romer, another great Colorado leader, had this great saying, all truth is partial. And so if you approach problem solving by saying, there's part of the truth that I'm not seeing, what's this other person seeing that I'm not seeing? That can really inculcate respect between people that can help you come up with better solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about that's an interesting segue into a couple other questions I want to ask you about walking in someone else's shoes, understanding their experience. In particular, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was some work that we're doing together in collaboration about reentry, um, walking in someone's shoes, someone coming out of the prison system, someone needing uh, a shot again at opportunity, particularly with employment. So I'd love to hear, and that's and that's something I think near and dear to our hearts in terms of representing large employers. You know, how uh, tell us before I ask a couple follow up questions. Tell us more about that program and your interest in helping people re-enter the workforce. Around four years ago, I met someone named uh, Kenny Cobbins who had been incarcerated. It was on a habitual offender statute, so I forget the exact um, offenses, but once he got to his third, he ended up with a longer sentence, and he was in prison learning to be a dog trainer. And he said that saved his life because when he was able to get out, he was committed to building life for himself and building a dog training business. And Kenny's really special with, with dogs. I met him at an organization called Cross Purpose, which is a fabulous Denver organization dedicated to supporting people who are looking to upskill, develop skills, develop upward mobility, back to sort of the American way, if you will. And 
I thought, boy, this makes a lot of sense. Too many people leave prison without skills, commit crimes, end up back in prison. That's bad for public safety. That costs us money. And that isn't giving people the opportunity. In fact, there's a phrase in the Bible, don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. If you let someone out of prison with $25 and they're homeless the next night and you expect them to stay on a productive path, that's asking a lot of people. And we shouldn't make it so difficult for people to find a better productive path. Kenny had the benefit of that dog training program. He had the benefit of cross purpose. Um, he's living a productive life today. And there's a story about him in Westward. So we worked on a report in our office about this initiative, this concept. And now we're working to do what you're helping, Debbie, educate employers about this compelling opportunity because it's a win-win. Employers are looking for talent. Workforce is hard. A lot of employers who've hired formerly incarcerated individuals say, these are some of my best loyal uh, and, and really dedicated employees who stay longer and appreciate. So that's a win for employers. Obviously, for the returning community members, getting that opportunity to have a job, to have the experience that Kenny's had is really powerful. And from a public safety perspective, we are reducing crime and we're reducing the public fisc to have to keep people in prison. So this is a, a critical concept. And, and one group looked at what you might call social return on investment. What initiatives could we invest in in society that would have the biggest social return? This was number one. If you could think about government like a business, you would think we need to be doing better in reentry. Right. Absolutely. And you just mentioned, I, I've just been getting to know the people at Cross Purpose. They work closely with one of my board members, Wayfield Contracting Group, who I know you met Carla the other day. You know, such important work. And I think what you really hit on at the beginning is it's it's the dignity of work for the individual at the end of the day. Certainly, it meets employers' needs. Certainly, it has economic impact. But when you can see the dignity of economic opportunity and mobility for an individual, I'm sure that's just incredibly fulfilling as well. Really, Absolutely. the whole point. <laughs> yeah, and the the relationship becomes the point because mm -hmm. people who do this build relationships, and that's part of back to the getting over demonization. One of the challenges in society is a level of stigma where people can judge one another without knowing each other. And here we say, get to know people. They may have been incarcerated for something. Lots of people make different mistakes in their lives. Giving them this opportunity to be a productive employee can be transformative, both for the employee and the employer. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, uh, you know, I've been hearing about some of the great work that's happening in your office around opioid recovery as well, you know, kind of a kind of a different side of the coin. Um, and this is something as well, I know that our employers want to learn more about as this develops, you know, how do we come around and understand opioid addiction from the employer standpoint and help people, you know, move forward with not only, you know, keeping their employment, but helping them find the services they need to find recovery. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing in that arena. A little bit of the backstory there, because I think it's illustrative and, and obviously there's a, a connection between our criminal justice system and, and the reentry, that's pretty obvious, but the criminal justice system and the opioid epidemic, many are not as aware of how this happens. Opioid addiction, if unchecked, will destroy your life. The haunting story I remember when I was in Colorado Springs at a town hall, someone said, I'm here because I really care about us providing more opportunities for treatment recovery. My wife, who had a master's degree, ended up struggling with opioid addiction, started with prescription pills, moved to heroin. She ended up homeless, and then she overdosed. Um, we're losing people to overdose deaths every day, and there are people on drug treatment in many cases who aren't getting it. 
who are dying of overdose. Uh, this has gotten worse. It started with these prescription pills pushed out by companies like Purdue Pharma. Then cartel saw a market and they pushed heroin more and more. And now it's being pushed in the form of fentanyl, which is 50 times more potent than heroin. So it's destructive and, and obviously the most literal sense it can destroy your life. But for those who are feeding an addiction, it's also destructive on a daily basis. Your relationships suffer. Your reliability as an employee suffers. And Phil, I might throw out, I I think for those of us who maybe think, oh, I live in the suburbs, it's not my problem. Oh, you know, I live here, it's not my problem. I think you'd argue, gosh, it's everybody's problem. It's pervasive in every economic status, every um, nook and cranny of Colorado. You know, it's something that everybody has to be aware of. If you do think it's not my problem, couldn't happen to me, I'm happy to introduce you to some people who will talk about people with master's degrees who struggled with addiction and overdosed. Parents who lost kids who were in college who thought what was given to them as an oxycodone pill was a party drug and it was fentanyl and it was deadly. The impact of this crisis is going to and can touch anybody. The stats that I often refer to is just last year alone, more people died of drug overdoses. Most of that is opioids than in car crashes and gun violence deaths combined. So we have a crisis here. And one of the challenges for us as a society is how do we help people get well? And part of what people don't think a lot about, because again, sometimes people might stigmatize those who are struggling with addiction, it changes your brain. Um, dependency is a word that often gets used as an all, another concept. It's not you're only addicted, you're dependent. And one form of treatment is a medication-assisted treatment, which helps you get past that dependency. But whatever your path of recovery is, you're in recovery for the rest of your life. And so there are people who struggle with addiction. There are people who are in recovery. And a lot of it, to your point, Debbie, is below the radar. People don't talk about it. And one of our challenges for substance use disorder, it's also a challenge for mental illness, is to get past the stigma. So we create more safety for people to say, I'm in recovery mm-hmm. where I struggle with depression. Well, and I think you just hit on something I didn't realize that it's a lifelong struggle. You know, once you get sort of in that, you know, it's not something you can check the box and be like, okay, I'm good. You know, it might be one of those things you have to just be mindful of your entire life. Besides the society, the societal impact and, and what you're seeing in terms of, you know, changing public perception, how can employers specifically help be a part of the solution? Employers can make a conscious effort to be recovery-friendly workplaces. If you want to tell employees, I see you, I care about you, I understand about your struggle, I believe that creates some safety and peer support. Because a lot of times people feel lonely, lacking connection. And if you have support groups in the employment area, and you often hear about this in, in alcoholism, for example, or other recovery programs, the 12-step program where you have, you know, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a it's a powerful tool. There's a saying that Sam Quinones, who's written a lot about the opioid epidemic, says, which is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And so part of what employers can do is open up that conversation, create that space to support people. And in so doing, a little bit like we're talking about reentry, I think that could create more loyal employees. There's a, a saying that often you hear teachers say, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. So for employers, there's a, I think, real opportunity. And this came through the pandemic some too, 
to show employees you care about them and caring about their mental health is an important way to show you care. Yeah, well said. And I think, um, you know, it, it's no surprise. I think that employers want loyal employees. They want longevity. In particular with COVID, there's been such a talent shortage crisis that maybe this will be even more top of mind than it would have been three or four years ago, which which is good timing because, um, you know, in particular, your office is receiving some additional funding that can help I think, formulate partnerships to make it more top of mind and to provide additional wraparound services. That's a great point. So as I was learning about this epidemic, you know, five years ago, I was asking, what can I as attorney general do about it? And there was an obvious answer. There's these pharmaceutical companies like Big Pharma that pushed out these pills that, that really fueled this crisis 25 years ago had yet to be held accountable. We're not bringing $500 million back to Colorado because these companies are basically agreeing that they uh, disserved society and hurt people. Now we get that money, and then with that comes opportunities, and we set up regional collaborators across the state, so we'll build more treatment recovery programs. We only have about 25% of what we need, and we'll work with employers to develop this concept of recovery-friendly workplaces. Part of this has to be also education and awareness for everybody, because this crisis can affect anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be sure to put information about um, your your website. I know there's a specific link to where employers in particular can sign up for regular communication from your office on how they can be more involved. And then I look forward to um, additional collaboration, again, with our large employers. And I appreciate you being on today, uh, Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser. Um, Phil, any last words for our audience today? In Colorado, we are collaborators at our core. That's how our state has grown up, managing our water and being really, uh, you know, true to the Centennial State spirit. And so as we face challenges, we face them together. Yeah, well said. That's one of our mantras, too. We talk about collaborating and convening. And when we're all together, uh, we can actually come up with solutions that are that are better for Colorado. So thanks again for joining us. This has been an episode of A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. Appreciate everybody joining in. A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown is a production of the Colorado Business Roundtable. You can find this episode, a listing of our upcoming events, and more information about our organization at cobrt.com.